This sermon here is going to cover 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 2 Samuel chapter 18. And I'm really looking forward to um, just just seeing Christ as sweet this morning. So the, the title of the sermon this morning is Sin Bitter, Christ Sweet. And so as we're, um, as we're kind of here um, this morning and we're uh, focusing on just the Word of God, I want to just encourage uh, all of you here and thank you, just as my brothers and sisters, for being such a wonderful church. I had the honor of being at a senior pastor's gathering this week uh, for Sovereign Grace Churches and um, just being together with fellow senior pastors, fellowshipping with them. I just had the opportunity to think about and talk about just the blessing that all of you are to my soul, just as I had the honor of being an under-shepherd um, just on your behalf. And I I just thank God for the many stories of just love and good deeds that you uh, shine forth, church. I was uh, with Louis Cintron's care group last week, and he was just telling me a story of a family who had uh, some car trouble. And uh, there were men from multiple care groups who were involved um, and in serving to help this family with some of the car troubles that they had. I I, I, I might not get them all, but I want to thank uh, John and Natalie Buckholder. I want to thank Ray and Candy um, Brenner. I want to thank Andy and Corey Stever, Lewis and Esther Cintron, Mark and Christina Warren. Um, Lewis, am I missing anybody in that group? I think I pretty much, but it's, it just shows just numerous couples and families involved with caring for the needs that have come up amongst one family in the church and when I heard that story, I, I was telling Shannon when I got home from the care group, uh, you know, and I, I it, it it makes me cry, church, like just the way that you love each other. And uh, there was a story, too, of John uh, Goodman's group uh, helping to care for TJ, who's had some back trouble recently, and they were helping to move wood into his garage. And just like the, the practical care for practical needs that you give um, to one another uh I gotta let you know, like, it, it's, we kinda see it often, and I don't know, we gotta just t- stop and take note that it is so precious in the Lord's sight, and so beautiful, and so powerful, and church, you are so wonderful, and I'm so thankful to God to have the honor to be one of your pastors, and so thank you. Um, that, those couple stories are just a few stories of many that I could highlight of ways in which I see God's grace at work in your midst. And, oh, God's awesome, isn't He? God's awesome. Well, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, He cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See? Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. 
And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Let's pray together. Almighty God, please bless the preaching of Your Word this morning. We thank You so much for the way Your Word ignites our souls and feeds us as Your sheep. We love You and we pray that You would feed us and strengthen us. And Lord, I pray we would indeed see our sin more bitter, but we would see Christ, Your Son, as even more sweet. Increase and strengthen our faith and our trust in You, Lord Jesus. And I pray also You would deepen the work of repentance that even we had the honor of engaging in this morning through John's leadership and communion. We're so grateful for You, Lord, and we love You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I, I kind of entered us into a section here in 2 Samuel 16. We're kind of a flash forward here from the section that we were in last week where David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then the aftermath of that happened, and Solomon was born. Um, this is a number of years later now, and uh, some of what was prophesied by Nathan the prophet uh, is being fulfilled in this section of Scripture. David actually has his son Absalom um, rise up against him and betray him with really a treacherous uh, act of, of making himself king. And, and David is actually needing to flee for his life out of Jerusalem um, because the heart of the men of Israel was stolen away by Absalom's passive-aggressive behavior and undermining of his leadership as king. And it's just this tragic story of David actually leaving Jerusalem. And as he's leaving, there's this 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 uh, relative of King Saul who would now had died. And, and he is just hurling curses and stones at David. And the reason I read this, I wanted you to see David's godly reaction to being just scorned and mocked. And the, the reason is because there's such a God-centeredness to the way he responds to it that really should affect our lives. But it's also, I'm going to, I'm going to take that snapshot. We're going to move all the way back into 13 and then we're going to build from there. And we're going to look at three points this morning. Number one, sin. Secondly, consequences. And thirdly, deliverance. So sin, consequences, and deliverance. So um, I want to uh, draw your attention back by way of context to last week. Um, we were looking at David's sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, whom he had murdered. And uh, the consequences come down on David through Nathan the prophet. He comes and tells David that the, as a consequence for the sins 
that he has done that it says in verse 11, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, the Word of God says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that is exactly what happens. The Word of the Lord is fulfilled. And we're going to see that play out in this section of Scripture that we're about ready to get into. But it's a real tragic, tragic uh, prophecy that ends up coming to pass. And we'll look at the details of it in a moment. But really, um, before David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then even afterward when there was a conquering of the Ammonites, even after this takes place, you're looking really militarily as a, a high watermark of uh, Israel's prosperity. David was now ruling not only the tribe of Judah, but all the other ten tribes of Israel as well. They were combined as one. And Israel was really at, at its most powerful under David and Solomon's reign. Um, there's a map that kind of represents this, uh, if you guys could put that up, that show you just how far the kingdom of Israel had expanded. Um, and I'm not sure if there it is. If you see what Israel was, if you notice all the old maps of Israel, you have a little strip right here that normally constitutes the land. But underneath of King David and Solomon's reign, the, 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 they subjected and brought under subjection all the surrounding kings and the land around them to the south. And you see all the way up to the north and the south and uh, the east and the west. Even the land of the Philistines on the coast over here in Gaza, all of this is subdued. So they're really experiencing prosperity um, as a kingdom. But uh, one of the things that takes place here, and this kind of touches in on our point with sin, and this is something that we all need to apply in our own lives as believers in Christ. Um, I heard a quote once by J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, that out of all the leaders in Scripture, there's only a handful of them that actually finish well. And one of the tests that happens with Christians, but also Christian leaders, is the test of prosperity. And I heard uh, him say that most Christians who go through the test of adversity will pass it. But a lot of Christians who go through the test of prosperity fail it. And a lot of times you don't think it's like that. We tend to think, God, if you prosper me, I'll worship you and I'll follow you with zeal and devotion. But it's actually in Scripture, it's times like that with the map where you see David, the kings, it's time for kings to go off to war, but David's just aware that we have subdued all these other nations around. You know what? I'm just going to take a little bit of a break. We're, we're reaching our high water mark here. And he actually just kind of gives himself a pass on going out to war during the times when the kings go off to war. And it sets himself up that sloth, that laziness, that, uh, that dynamic in his soul that led him to stay back from going off to war, fighting God's battles in the field with his men, led him and positioned him to actually be tempted to and actually to commit adultery. And so it's actually during a time that's very prosperous is the point. He's prospering, and that's when the temptation, and as Ephesians 6 calls it, the day of evil. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, 
you'll be able to stand, Ephesians 6 says in the full armor of God passage. This is a clear example where when we are enjoying times of prosperity, we have to be on extra guard because we tend to think, oh, I'm good now and times are good. And um, when you're going through adversity, I know it's very difficult, and we are going to go through adversity as Christians all the way until we get to heaven, because we as God's children are, we are pilgrims in this world on our way to the heavenly city, like Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. There are many dangers, toils, and snares. There are many adversities that we go through. Adversity is difficult, but one thing about adversity that I think we'll all acknowledge, adversity keeps you on your knees. Adversity makes you desperate for God, and it's uncomfortable, but you are closer to God. You're actually in a situation where you're praying more than normally you might, and you're seeking God more aggressively than you might because you are put into a situation of adversity. And so, adversity often causes you to grow spiritually. I was talking with uh, John Lillendahl about this last night at the youth regional meeting, just as dads attending there, watching our kids and enjoying the youth group and the parents. Um, and, and John was just commenting on that as well, just that it's actually times of prosperity that are the times where we really have to be on guard. And, and it's one of those things that he said to me, adversity has actually been the means of more growth in his Christian life than the sweet times have been, if you will. And so I think for us, we need to learn a lesson from this on the first point on sin with the life of David, that it was during a time of prosperity that he was most tempted to commit immorality and actually did. And he committed murder. And all of this happens at a time where Israel's prosperity outwardly is is at its zenith. It's really doing really well. So let's all be on guard and, and let us take stock of that. If you're feeling like things are just going very well in your life, just pay careful attention to a spiritual deadness that can creep in because when we feel like we're doing well, that's when self-sufficiency and pride and sort of a self-reliant attitude can kind of kick in. And instead of being on your knees in prayer and fasting and fighting the good fight, we can become vulnerable like David to uh, stumbling and falling into sin. So let's take that as an application to our own souls, church, in relation to these passages that kind of um, precede chapter 13. Um, Nathan comes to David, like John did such a great job this morning during the call to worship, talking about. Nathan comes to him, and he confronts David in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12. And he says to David, David, you are the man. You sinned here. And David actually responds in a powerful way. He actually says, I have sinned against the Lord. If you look down in verse 13, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David says to Nathan in response to that confrontation, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. That acknowledgement, that humble acknowledgement before his brother, before the prophet Nathan, is a real grace in David's soul. 
one of the worst things that could ever happen to any of us is for us to sin. And instead of saying the response that David says here, I have sinned against the Lord, is to blame shift our sin. To minimize our sin. To say it wasn't that bad compared to what other people have done. To make excuses for our sin. We are all of us, even as believers, we're hardwired not to say before the Lord, I have sinned before the Lord. And so, just as our first point is we're looking at sin, let's look at David's response. And we've been talking about, we can see how David is a man after God's own heart through many different stories about David in First and Second Samuel. But I think that we also see an evidence of a man after God's own heart in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, where David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he pens Psalm 51, where he talks about a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Lord, you will not despise. And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. So when he's confronted with his sin, he goes upward. He goes vertical. He doesn't think, oh man, I got caught. He goes upward with a broken heart and a contrite spirit toward God. And you see that men and women of God, who are men and women of God after God's own heart, when they sin, they repent. They don't make excuses for their sin. They repent. One of the signs that you are a true Christian, if you are a true Christian, is that when you sin, you don't make light of it, you don't minimize it, you don't rationalize it, you don't make excuses for it. Like David, when you sin, you own it. Brothers and sisters, you say, I have sinned against the Lord. He actually says something similar in Psalm 51 where he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's not that David wasn't mindful of how he sinned against Bathsheba. And it's not that David wasn't mindful of the wickedness he committed against Uriah horizontally and the way he abused his power and his position horizontally to the people of Israel. But Christ's community, please listen carefully because this is a really important point for all of us. When we sin, the most important thing for all of us is to go vertical, not horizontal. We need to go and make repairs horizontally. But let that be secondary to the first act, which is to say, as David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That is the start of a repair and a repentance and a godly sorrow that brings salvation and leaves no regret, as Second Corinthians 7 talks about. Worldly sorrow is, it, it leads to death, Second Samuel 7 says. That is being sad over your sin because of how it makes you feel bad. Being sad over sin because you got caught and now there's consequences. Being sad over your sin for horizontal reasons but not connecting with God vertically that, Lord, it's against You and You only have I sinned and done what is evil in Your sight. Let us take a lesson from 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we look at sin and see that the most important thing we can do 
when we are confronted by the Holy Spirit, or as John had mentioned, as we're, as we're brought our sin by a loving brother or sister in Christ, in grace, listen to the Holy Spirit's voice as our brothers and sisters are helping us grow in our sanctification. And let us do that with graciousness and tenderness. But as we do that ministry, let us also, and as we hear the Holy Spirit's voice convicting us of how we sin, let us go vertical with the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Amen? It's so important to make sure that you go upward toward God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You know, it's really the case, I, I think about this a lot, it, it's not just for the, the, the massive, big sins I, I can re- recollect from my past that I need forgiveness for. I, I think of the sins that many people would look at and just say, oh, that's a small sin in the grand scheme of things. It certainly wasn't murder or anything like that. Just, just pride and sins like that. There is more evil in the smallest sin that we have, brothers and sisters, than, than Christ can stand to endure. If we don't repent, even of the smallest of sins, it's important to note that Christ had to groan in agony on the cross, not just for the great big mass of sins, though that also caused Him to groan in agony on the cross, but for the evidences of pride and anger in our lives on a daily basis, often that we just kind of, oh yeah, I was a little short with my wife this morning. You know, I was abrupt. I, I just kind of yelled at my kids a little bit. But you know what? It wasn't that bad. They're, they're lucky to have me as a dad. Or, you know, just there's all these temptations to minimize as opposed to saying, you know what? Holy Spirit, I am so sorry that I grieved you yet again with my attitude here. And I need to go back to my kids. I need to go back to my spouse. And I need to say, I have sinned against the Lord. And I've also sinned against you. Will you please forgive me, God? And then will you please forgive me, um, whoever you need to ask forgiveness for? That's the way we're called to live as Christians in relation to our sin. And you see David as a man after God's own heart that when he sins, he repents. And the genuineness of the repentance is seen in that he goes vertical. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I hope that's helpful for all of us. Just practically, it's so, so very important. And we're going to see it flow as we continue onward. I think it's this attitude here that also, if you make the connection later in 2 Samuel 16, when Shimei is mocking him because the consequences of his sin are playing out in his life, as Nathan prophesied it would, he's not inclined to say, you know what, Abishai, yeah, why don't you go and cut off that dead dog's head, Shimei? I'm sick of hearing him curse too. I don't deserve this. I'm the king. The soft-heartedness that led him upward in this moment with Nathan had a carryover effect that led to him entrusting his trials to the Lord later on and led him not to take vengeance into his own hands against Shimei. And it's things like that, brothers and sisters, where we, we have these moments of truth where am I going to humble myself? Am I going to really own my sin before the Lord in repentance? Or am I going to just subtly just harden my heart and say, you know what? I don't need to ask God for forgiveness for that. I don't need to ask my my siblings or my mom and dad or anybody for forgiveness over that. And you just move on and think that simply because time has passed, 
that you've actually done work with God. Or that now, because it's off your mind, because a couple days have passed, that your heart hasn't, in the interim period, maybe grown a little bit harder because you've ignored the voice of the Holy Spirit on your conscience telling you, say to God, I have sinned against the Lord. And so I'm so thankful for John's leadership this morning in communion. Doesn't he do such a great job serving this church? And the way that John led us to the foot of the cross to really repent before the Lord, before we partook of communion, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're in the faith, and to examine ourselves to make sure if there's any sins that we are just living in, that we're not repenting of, that we say before we partake of communion, I have sinned against the Lord. Father, forgive me. Forgive me for what I've done. Let's have a regular pattern as we're faced with our sin of responding like David did as a man after God's own heart with that upward orientation. It's very sincere and very genuine. I'm really sorry, Lord, for what I've done. Will you please forgive me? And the good news is, as 1 John 1.9 was read this morning, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a great verse? I love that verse. So we're going we're gonna to see David's sin play out in terms of its consequences now. That's point two. So let's look at the second point, which is consequences. Oh, and brothers and sisters, it is so tragic. I mean, it is so sad. I, I want to anchor you in there to chapters 13 through 18. Um, if you're not following along in our Bible reading program that we're having for our church, to kind of dip you into these scriptures prior to the sermons happening for it. Keep your Bibles open while I'm preaching. And even as I'm looking through 13, I know I'm going to have to fly through this. There's so much to learn about the Lord in the Old Testament. And even as you look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, you see it begin where the consequences start to play out. Amnon, David's son, violates and commits immorality in violation of Tamar. He rapes his sister Tamar. It's, it's an awful, awful story. Um, it's, it's a wickedness in Amnon that he commits against his sister. And it, it's, it's really tragic as you read the story and you see the, the ongoing effects really in Tamar's life of Amnon being selfish and lustful and indulging his own selfish desires in a way that hurts Tamar really for the rest of her life. And I'm not going to be able to get into it very in depth, but I'm very aware as even those words are said and as this story is read in Scripture, these stories are very painful to read for all of us, but also it can be very painful for those who have suffered being violated in similar ways at some point in their lives. And I want to let anybody who has been violated in that sort of a way, know that we here at Christ Community Church want you to feel like you have a safe haven and a place of refuge for you to worship the Lord and also know that you're going to be loved and cared for and not judged, but embraced. And that is our heart as a local church. Brothers, as you look at the story of Amnon and his wickedness, Women of God should feel like they have the safest place to be around men in the church. Let us be brothers 
that treat our sisters in the Lord with honor and respect and in virtue and godliness and let them feel beloved and cherished and honored and respected and valued for the wonderful women of God they are and never treated as objects wickedly as Amnon treats his sister. It is so sad to see what takes place. So Amnon violates his sister Tamar and Tamar and Absalom are brother and sister from the same mother named Maka. So there was a bond between particularly Absalom and Tamar that even Amnon didn't have prior to that because Amnon was born of a different mother in David's household. Absalom hears about it. And Absalom is absolutely incensed and angered, rightly, over the way that his sister was violated. David hears about it. David doesn't bring his son, Amnon, to justice. The Scriptures simply say that David was greatly angered. He was angered, but he didn't carry out justice. He didn't punish his son and see that justice was done on his son. And so that caused Absalom for two years to brew with a bitterness and resentment toward not just Amnon, but there was a seed of bitterness that began to grow toward his father all the way back here for how he didn't take action, David, as a father toward helping his daughter Tamar in her grief. It seems that Absalom rallied around her. Absalom took his sister into his home. But but David is all of a sudden, he's just not very engaging, not very caring into the situation as a dad. Some of his passivity you're going to start to see here. We want to remember that, that the sins that we looked at in David's life from last week with the adultery and murder, those weren't the only instances in Scripture where David sinned. There's other sins as well. And one of these sins, as you see at times here in the Scriptures where David fails to carry out justice when it comes to his own family. And with Amnon, that was the case. And so Absalom begins to grow in bitterness. And actually, Absalom conspires to have Amnon murdered. And Amnon is murdered two years later. When David first hears the news, when David first hears the news, He thought that all of his sons had been slaughtered. And then he hears this report that no, it was only Amnon who died. And so now you have Absalom who's guilty, his own son guilty of murdering one of his other sons. Absalom flees out of the land of Israel to escape. And Amnon's dead, but there's not this pursuit of his son Absalom now for the murder of his own brother. So you're going to see this play out again. He kind of keeps Absalom in exile, but his heart as the king toward his own son longs to see a reconciliation of some sort happen. And this starts to transition into chapter 14 now. Absalom returns to Jerusalem. And as he returns... 
he's kept at a distance by David. He's not actually brought back into the intimate circle of his court. And finally, Absalom gets frustrated over the fact that David won't fully reconcile. And he says, essentially, I should have just stayed in Gesher far away if you're not going to, if you're going to treat me like this as your son. And Joab, who was instrumental in getting Absalom back close into Israel, Absalom actually burns down Joab's field to get Joab's attention and say, listen, you need to force this situation where I get brought back into my father's court. Or else, why did I even come back here? And so you see this, this young man, Absalom, and in the way he's acting, his, as a son, this bitterness begins to take root in his life. And David finally, after hearing a story from a woman at Joab's behest, listens and has Absalom come back and talk with him. But again, Absalom is sort of kept at a distance from David. He's not brought in. There's not punishment done. you got to understand, Absalom is a murderer now. He murdered his brother, Amnon, and he escapes justice because it's not because there was, there was some trial and he was exonerated for what he did or it was a crime of passion and, it, and, and due process was served. David just does not bring justice against his sons. And and it, it, he does it, but it actually wreaks havoc in Absalom's life as chapter 14 continues to pre- proceed forward. He kisses Absalom in reconciliation in terms of, I had him here, I honored Joab's request. But he doesn't bring his son in close. He doesn't care for his son's soul, perhaps the way he should have. And then in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom conspires against David. And so here's what Nathan the prophet said. You are going to have evil arise from within your own house that's going to be a consequence of your sin that you committed with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's happening. First with Amnon, and then also later on here with Absalom as well. I, I Just to, to flash back toward uh, Tamar, one of the things that's so beautiful is it talks about Tamar and she's, she's a woman who is covered in her own mind and her own heart with disgrace. And it's such a terrible image seeing her weeping as she flees away. And, and, and she lived in Absalom's house. And the love Absalom had for his sister is seen even that he named one of his daughters after her. And, and she just has this heart. And uh, she was covered with shame. And I was just thinking about how wonderful is heaven going to be for Tamar as we're all rejoicing around the throne of Christ and all, not just the sins we've committed, but the sins that others have committed against us who that have violated us and have caused us to feel shame. An important thing to recognize is with shame, it's not some of the hardest shame to eradicate isn't the shame even of your own sin that you commit a lot of times. Shame is often put upon us when others sin against us wickedly and violate us. And it's hard for that to come off of us. But the power of the Gospel is strong. The blood of Christ is so strong that as 1 John 1.9 says, if we are faithful and just, if we, if, we, if we cry out and ask the Lord for forgiveness, if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to understand that the power of the cross reaches in not just to the violations we've committed against others and against God, but the cross of Christ also and the blood of Christ also cleanses even the wrongs and acts of wickedness and sin that have been committed against us. And the pain that brothers and sisters carry often all the way throughout, even their Christian lives now, after having endured such wickedness against themselves, when they are gathered around the throne, it will all be forever gone. And it will all be just joy and freedom from even the lingering effects of the wrongs and wickedness that was done against us. It also moves me that Tamar, she has a Savior in Jesus who understands what it's like to be violated. Who understands what it's like to bear shame of other sins committed against Him. And in Him willingly offering Himself as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross, He bears our guilt and our shame and takes it all and covers it by the blood so that I want to give assurance to you of this. You may feel the lingering effects of other people's sins even against you here on this earth and you will in this fallen world. Your eternal future, brother or sister who have been violated, who have been hurt by others grievously in your life, all of that in heaven will be forever behind your back and you will enjoy a freedom and a peace forever that perhaps you may feel like it's been robbed of you and taken from you here in this fallen world. It will be repaid with goodness and love and mercy forever and ever and ever in heaven. And I want to encourage you that Tamar's story, though destitute here in this fallen world because of the wickedness of her brother, Tamar is enjoying even right now the happy presence of Christ. And I'm so thankful that sin and its consequences have an end in the joyful, eternal future we have, all of us who have believed in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be awesome. And I can't wait to be there together with you, all you who believe. If you haven't believed, please trust in Christ. Repent of your sin because only through Christ can you enjoy that happy future of your sins being forgiven and also all of your shame forever being behind your back? Take comfort, brother and sister, in God's powerful eradicating love through the cross. But Absalom sits at the gates of Jerusalem and as people are walking in from Israel, he kind of just says, oh, verse 4, chapter 15, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. 
And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This passive-aggressive, very sneaky behavior of just undermining and saying, oh, if you had somebody who could represent you, then you would get justice. You're not going to get justice with my father, King David, but you would get justice with me. The hearts of the people of Israel slowly go over to Absalom, and then Absalom rises up. And David actually needs to flee Jerusalem because it becomes clear that Absalom is coming in with power. And if you don't get out of Jerusalem, David, you're going to be killed by your own son. And your reign will come to an end. And now David is in exile once again. I mean, as if he hadn't had enough of it in the 14 years leading up after he kills Goliath and he's got all these trials. He's in exile for four years straight running away from King Saul. Now finally, he's king over Judah and Israel, and he would probably think with the prosperity of the map that we showed earlier, that all of the days of exile are forever behind his back, but his own sin have brought about a new exile, where he's needing to flee from his own son, who treacherously betrayed him, and is now taking the throne. Absalom just commits many acts of wickedness here against David. But this all is taking place in fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy to David. Listen, as David's fleeing Jerusalem, just an interesting text here I want to highlight as we talk about seeing Christ in all of Scripture with this series. Look at verse 30 of chapter 15. But David, this is as he's fleeing, he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. Barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, got to remember, Ahithophel was David's right-hand man, his counselor. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So it's not just his son, now it's his right-hand man as well, betraying him. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Which God answers that broken-hearted musing and that prayer as Ahithophel's counsel is defeated by Hushai, the other advisor. And Ahithophel's pride was so incensed that Absalom didn't follow his counsel, but followed another man's counsel, that he went home, put his house in order, and then killed himself. And in God's providence, Ahithophel, this traitor, the Lord took care of one of David's betrayers and ended up working David's deliverance just quietly behind the scenes through his providence. And that's always important for us to note that God's always working behind the scenes to deliver and save us as His people. He's always working all things together for our good. But I want to draw your attention. I was so moved when I was meditating on this. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Have you ever heard of another king who spent time weeping in the Mount of Olives? It's such a powerful image here of David and then David's greatest son, King Jesus, walking into the Mount of Olives the night before he dies. He's in Gethsemane. And he is under so much strain and so much stress because he knew he was going to take all of our sin on himself on the cross the next day 
that the stress of it caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood. Jesus knows what it's like to weep in the Mount of Olives, and so did King David as well. The consequences of David's sin are playing out. In the passage that I read to you, Shimei curses David. In the section right before that was Ziba. Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And Ziba comes up and says, yeah, Mephibosheth went with Absalom as well. It was a lie. Mephibosheth stayed loyal to David. But but uh, Ziba lies about Mephibosheth. And David, just in his brokenhearted state, said, all that belonged to Mephibosheth now belongs to you. And so there's just these guys grasping for power and possessions in the midst of David's brokenheartedness. And he's walking away from Jerusalem as his son has betrayed him and has taken over the kingdom. And now he's got Shimei, one of the descendants of Saul, cursing him and hurling stones at him. You know what? That might have been the breaking point for all of us. You know what? Go and cut off his head, Abishai. But he doesn't. He sees his suffering as under the sovereignty of God so much that he actually says that the Lord has told Shimei to curse. Who am I to stop him? Let him do it. My own son has betrayed me. How much more this son of Saul? There's, you see that again, this upward orientation. He's aware of God more than he's aware of the curses and the rocks being thrown at him. He's aware of God and his sovereignty more than he's aware of the sins against him at the hands of men. Brothers and sisters, that is what a man after God's own heart and a woman after God's own heart does. They entrust their suffering. They entrust the suffering that comes about through the consequences even of their own sin into the hands of God. Many people, when things go this bad in their life, even many professing believers, others curse them and they curse God that they've been brought into such affliction. David didn't do that. He entrusted himself. I know I've said this about this with us, church. It's a real burden because David, you see this as a man after God's own heart, numerous times in his story. And I want this to really mark all of us as believers. There are those who take matters into their own hands, fight for themselves, and bring vengeance for themselves. And then there are those who entrust themselves to their faithful Creator while continuing to do good. There are those who entrust just judgment and vengeance. As Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God's going to take care of that. I'm putting that into God's hands. But as for me, I'm going to entrust myself to the Lord. No, don't go and kill this man. The Lord has told him the curse. And who am I to stop him? It's the godliness of that moment moves me. Absalom, going on in 16, enters into Jerusalem. He ends up sleeping with all of his father's concubines. The reason he does this is he wants to make himself a stench before all of David's men that they would know that Absalom is not going to reconcile with David. It's like gloves off. This is a severed relationship. It's never going to happen. Absalom did that. Oh, man. There's never going to be a reconciliation and the counsel Hithophel gave is if you do that, what's, what's going to happen is that everybody around you who is defending you knows that they're going to stand by your side and that you're not going to reconcile with David and bring trouble on them later. And so it's so sad, but this fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet said was going to happen, he said to David, David, you committed your immorality in secret. 
what's going to happen against you is going to be public and everybody's going to know it. It's fulfilled there in the second half of 16. And brothers and sisters, it's just a highlight of God always fulfills His Word. Always. Everything. To the big prophecies about Christ, about His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, all the way down to the prophet Nathan saying that your immorality was private, but the consequences of your sin, it's going to be played out publicly. And so finally, I want to look at point three, which is deliverance in 17 and 18. And you look at the top of the header of 17, you'll see that the phrase, Hushai saves David. It's interesting. David sends Hushai back, and, and Absalom thinks Hushai's with him, but he's actually serving as a spy at David's behest to go back in. And he actually gives counsel against Ahithophel's counsel, which was good counsel, to go out and hunt David down quickly and kill him good counsel from the standpoint of Absalom's perspective, Hushai gives counsel to let him go for a little bit. And it gives David time to recover in the wilderness. Hushai actually ends up saving David. And you see the providence of God just working out in the details where David's able able to go in the wilderness, refresh himself, gather strength. He actually has Gentile countries rallying around him while he's in exile to strengthen him and his men that they might fight another day, and they do. And it ends up leading to Absalom's downfall. In chapter 18, and I I wish I could read all of it to you, I just can't for the sake of time. Read the story though. David's son Absalom is killed. And I just want to read this one small section in chapter 9. Verse 9, read with me. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, this is in the midst of battle. Absalom eventually does go out of Jerusalem to hunt David down. But David's men were now recovered and strong. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, or the fellow warriors of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it. And told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak. So then what happens, brothers and sisters, is Joab says, listen, if you would have killed him, I would have given you money for it. But David already told Joab, don't kill my son Absalom. The love David still has, even for his son who betrayed him, is, is very noteworthy and honorable. He doesn't give up on his son, even after his son betrays him. His heart goes out to him as a father, which is so honorable. But Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust him, if you look down at verse 14, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So Joab and his men, they kill Absalom. And in God's providence, this delivers David out from the oppression of Absalom's conspiracy. But it breaks David's heart. And I want to just highlight this in terms of deliverance because I was so moved by this when I thought about Absalom being hung up and caught up in a tree. Absalom, as a son also, he was a wicked son, was pierced through his own heart. Where do we know of another son who was hung up on a tree? A good son. A perfect son who was pierced through his own heart, not for the sins that he had done, 
but for the sins that we had done that were put upon him. King Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth and hung up in a tree. And he was slaughtered as he was pierced through his hands and his feet and in his side and through his heart. It moves me so much that Jesus has done this for us as sinners. And it affects me as chapter 18 closes and David understands what took place that Absalom was killed. He's waiting for news and I just want to read that last section in 18. David understands that his son was killed in verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up the upper chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Tragic portrait in the life of King David, suffering for the consequences of his sin. But even as he's in the midst of the grief, there are a couple lessons to learn. David's grief and sorrow for his wicked son Absalom and how moved he was by his suffering and death. How much more, brothers and sisters, must our Heavenly Father have been moved and deeply grieved and affected and broken-hearted over the death of His perfectly righteous Son, Jesus, when Jesus was killed. And how deep the Father's love for us that He was give, would give His only Son. David grieved over this Son, and yet David had many sons. God our Father has one Son. And yet He willingly gave Him up for all of us out of the great love with which He loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If David wept and grieved this much over the death of a wicked son, how much love must God have that He would have voluntarily, the Father, suffered to put His one precious Son up for all of us? Oh, brothers and sisters, it moves me. And that final phrase... David said, would I had died instead, instead of you. David as king did not have the power to die in the stead of his sinful son. But God has the power to send His Son to die in the stead of all of you and me who have by His grace repented and believed. For David, it was just a godly heart's desire. I wish that I died instead of you. For Jesus, Jesus said, I will willingly and with joy die in the stead of you. And so we are all here, those of us who have believed, forgiven of all of our sins, cleansed, from all of our shame. Shame from our own sins and also the shame of the sins that have been committed against us. The power of the cross of Christ is just that powerful. All because King Jesus wept 
in the Mount of Olives and offered Himself as a sacrifice instead of you and me. Can we just give thanks to Him for how awesome He is? Jesus, we thank You. We love You. Father, how can we thank You enough for Your love for us? That You would have loved Your own Son more than we could even imagine. Oh Lord, if David loved Absalom so much, even after betrayal and after all the wickedness that he committed, and he still had that love, how much more, Father, must you love your son who never sinned against you, never violated your laws or commands, and only perfectly obeyed you? Oh, indeed you said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But you willingly crushed this son with whom you were well pleased because so great was your love for us. That You sent Your Son. Thank You, Father. Jesus, thank You, King of kings, Lord of lords, for weeping in the Mount of Olives, sweating drops of blood, and going all the way to the cross to die as our substitute in the place of us sinners. Lord, we thank You so much for Your sacrifice. We're so grateful for Your broken body and Your shed blood, which is our salvation. And we just want to tell You how much we love You, how grateful we are for You. And how excited we are that we're going to be able to spend an eternity with You in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And all sin and all shame will be forever gone out of that place. And all will be freedom and joy and just, oh Lord, delight and pleasure forevermore before You. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Great. As John mentioned, let us uh, break down the room at this time, and then we're going to enjoy our koinonia meal. Church, I love you. John loves you. We are so grateful for you. Um, let's enjoy our lunch, but let's do everything we can to get it around, get the room around, and then we'll get our children in a few minutes.